This podcast was recorded on the ancestral lands on Treaty 1 territory, the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Cree, Oji Cree, Dakota, and the Dene peoples, and on the homeland of the Métis Nation. This is Humans on Rights, a podcast advocating for the education of human rights. Here's your host, Stuart Murray. My guest today is Karen Taylor Hughes. She is the CEO of Harvest Manitoba. In the last 20 years, Taylor Hughes has transitioned through a variety of sectors, including First Nations, government, child welfare, healthcare, technology, financial services, agribusiness, not-for-profit, and education. These roles have led her to travel and work around North America and abroad. She's traveled to other countries to do NGO work, such as Thailand and Cambodia with Food for the Hungry, and Egypt and Jordan with Global Action. Today, Taylor Hughes is the Chief Executive Officer of Harvest Manitoba, the fourth largest not-for-profit food bank in Canada. Karen Taylor Hughes, welcome to Humans on Rights. Thank you, Stuart. Pleasure to be here. So, Karen, your background is fantastic, and your journey, your human life journey is incredible. I just read a bit of it in the introduction, but but in your words, how did your journey take you to become the chief executive officer of Harvest Manitoba? My journey, I think, started out as a young child, where I saw people in my community take leadership roles in my life and helped me grow and learn to get back to my community whether it was in school where I had a teacher that took an interest or um, in the community, in a community church or in track and field through coaches. And I always saw people giving back and helping me get better at what I was doing. And so I think I saw that something that appealed to me, I was gravitated towards it. So that became sort of what I focused on. Those are opportunities I enjoyed and liked helping people get from one stage to the other and see both and acknowledge that. And I think my entire career is all about leading change. And that's what I specialized in was leading change. And so we'll come to the fact that uh, part of that leading change is you've had a, a, a name change uh, where you work. Talk about the necessity to do that and why you felt that was important. When I came to Winnipeg Harvest, as we were called up until about a year ago, we also had a provincial association, which is called the Manitoba Association of Food Banks. And they were an active group board that worked with Harvest. And together, we supported the food bank and the agencies across the province. But it came to a point in time where I think jointly we recognized that it would make more sense to merge and become one entity and to then be a stronger voice in our community and across our province and that Harvest would continue to be the collector and distributor of food to all across the province and take away the confusion of having two different entities. So luckily, um, at that time, the board chair for Manitoba Association of Food Bank, Jim Feeney, and I had a great conversation, and both board chairs got together, and we went through this merger process. And actually, it was really successful because our goals were aligned, and we streamlined, and we were more efficient. And... And certainly through COVID, we've seen more effective. 
So Harvest Manitoba then becomes the sort of umbrella organization. Karen, is that fair to say? That's correct. We have associate members and they are food banks. They are schools. They are soup kitchens, shelters, a variety of areas that serve um, low-income families and or children and vulnerable people. I want to touch back a bit on your your life journey uh, because I'm I'm fascinated by the fact that you spent time coaching, and I look at that as part of the ground that your foundation as a as kind of your leadership is around coaching. What was your experiences around coaching? Talk a little bit about your 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 frustrations, but obviously those lead to wonderful. Um, triumphs and things that you see. And, and, you know, that experience, I think, is uh, most people I don't know involved in coaching just say it's, it's a wonderful experience. Please share yours. It is a wonderful experience. And as I mentioned, I was very active as a child. And even in junior, in elementary, started playing basketball and after school recreation with a wonderful fellow named Paul Gronowski, who later on became my high school math teacher. And again, just great community leaders that were interested and a lot of athletes and children athletes don't have the experience of having really good coaches all the time. I'm fortunate to say probably across five sports and probably 20 plus years, I never had a bad coach. I had great people who were invested in me and showed up and supported me. And I was actually shocked when the club that I um, ran for for many years a Cinnabon Optimist turned around and asked me to be a coach. When you've been an athlete your whole life, it was quite shocking. And I was like, I know nothing about being a coach. And they said, that's okay. We'll help you learn. But you've had lots of experience being an athlete. So it's just flipping the coin. And then I went and got my national certifications and had an opportunity to coach at club, provincial, and national levels and just learned how and learn what I've learned at Harvest. It's just as wonderful to receive as it is to give. And as a coach, you're giving of yourself. And it was a great experience. I worked, I coached for six years, probably three days a week, traveled every second weekend for 50 weeks of the year. And never once did I leave work and go, I don't want to go to U of M to the track because I'm tired. I got there. I got energy. I got support. I watched athletes grow and mature. And I think that was my foundation to see that growth and be a part of it. I knew their parents. We worked as a team. And I think just having the experience of being an athlete and then being a coach and being able to set that, that, those parameters. And I had lots of support. I had great examples. I took a coaching course at UW with Cal Botterill at the time, who was the psychologist for the Chicago Blackhawks. He was amazing. And just had lots of good support along the way, I think, to become a fairly good coach. And I enjoyed it. So when I took that into the workplace and leading change, I realized I had to coach as well. I had to coach leaders to be successful in leading change. So it all naturally wove together. So my journey, planned or not, it all sort of dovetails nicely, all my experiences to get me to where I am. Yeah, you know, and just Cal Botterill, just uh, Karen, he was my uh, high school uh, I mean, just, you know, his, uh, his legacy legend and who he is, is, is remarkable. Um, just before we move on to what goes on at Harvest Manitoba, let me come back and just ask you, what was the biggest adjustment to go from athlete to coach? I think as an athlete, you never think about what a coach has to do to prepare for your workouts. 
And the higher, the higher levels of certification, the more sophisticated you are. So you have to realize there's micro and macro cycles. And you have to know if your goal is to, at the end, this is Jan, September. And if your goal is next August to make a junior national team, as a coach, is a responsibility to ensure the athlete is prepared to be at their peak as performance for that trial and then maintain it for the end event if it's a junior nationals or a Pan Am Games or something. So there's a lot of time and prep that goes into planning the workouts and the strategies behind that as well, because I had more more knowledge, adding the whole psychology piece of that and how they stay focused and have different warm-ups. Like if you travel for hours on a bus in a dark bus and all of a sudden you get off into this field house with bright lights and noise, that can be very jarring. And you have to now compete in an hour. How do you do that? So I think the more I learned, the better I became prepared at it. But as an athlete, I had no idea what was involved in um, being a coach. And that's actually very similar to being a CEO. No idea until you're here. That's a great uh, segue, Karen. And uh, I, love the, I love the explanation. So let's segue now to becoming, uh, when you came, it was at that time, Winnipeg Harvest before the change to Harvest Manitoba, as you explained. Obviously, you applied for the job. You've got great skill sets, your, your, your background. What was your first impression when you arrived? What was your first impression of the organization, the issues that were facing it? Well, when I got here, again, it's kind of being an athlete and switching over. I really didn't know that much about hearts. I went to the website, had a look, and I thought, okay, they're a food bank and they distribute food. But didn't really understand the depth and the breadth of the work that they do. And when I had walked into the doors, they had just recently unionized. And so that was a brand new dynamic. But working for the government, I've worked in unionized organizations before, so it didn't bother me. But it was just understanding the culture and seeing that, um, you know, we need to enhance the culture and really build trust right away. We're probably the most important things, I think, as a leader that you want to do. Certainly as a business person, when I would go out and meet new clients or talk to folks, one of the first things you do is you talk about your background. So you build some respect and some uh, they, and they actually realize that you've done this before and you're probably pretty good at it. That gives you an open door. When you come as a CEO and with a whole bunch of tools and skills, but not ones perhaps they've seen or experienced before, the trust building process was quite, um, had to be really specific and building culture was really important. So I think that was probably, those are some of the things I noticed that I had to work on and again, just really realizing day to day, learning more about the, the business. It took the first you know, hundred days like most leaders do to look, listen and learn. And I was just completely shocked. There's so much that goes on here that people have no concept of. And I thought that's our job. So let people know what we really do and how much we do. So I think that was the biggest aha was realizing we're so much more than we had ever that people actually really knew about. It's a great overview of uh, the first days, uh, you know, on a, in a position like that, Karen. I think that one of the challenges when you become, you've got a title. I mean, somebody has to lead the organization. You're the chief executive officer. And that is a, that is a mouthful. It's a big title. And of course, you know the responsibility. 
But when you're talking to people in an organization and you're introduced as a chief executive officer, sometimes on a grassroots organization, that's a pretty, you know, intimidating title. How were you able to sort of go through letting people know that maybe my title, but it's not, you know, who I am? Well, because I, you know, as you mentioned, I worked in child welfare and literally worked five minutes from where I'm sitting right now in my first 12 years of work. So I'm familiar with the area, I'm familiar with our clientele and the challenges that they have. So I think having that knowledge was helpful, but I think it was just about being around. My door was open. I'd spend time in all the departments, getting to know the people, know all their names, learn about them. I spent a lot of time developing my leaders. So they got to know me. So I wanted to start top down as well as bottom up so that people got a good sense of me and that they would realize that I was fair, I was open, um, and I'm collaborative. I think to lead change, you have to be collaborative, and that's sort of been my whole life mantra is leading change, and it can't be done alone. So I really spent time just getting to know people and being accessible. And so did that cause the process of how Winnipeg Harvest at that time, again, I'm, I apologize. I'm going to go back and forth. So between Winnipeg Harvest and as it currently is called now, um, Harvest Manitoba, did that cause any change, Karen, in how the organization dealt with those individuals, those families that were looking to be supported through the work that Harvest Manitoba does? What I was able to do was really crystallize what we do and tie everyone to that platform. I think people were in kind of a little bit of silos, which is very common in organizations, even though we're small and grassroots. But I really focused on, we're all here for the same reason, and that's to make sure that no Manitoban goes hungry. Whether you're the cleaning person, the facilities person, calling donors to say thank you, we're all on the same page. And I think that was a really important piece. So I think when we did that, I think there was always passion and compassion for those that we served. I think we just had a greater sense of purpose once we all united on that front. So, Karen, when people ask where you work and, you know, and work at a place that, as you said, make sure that no, no person goes hungry. When you think about our conversation today as it is in, in, um, in, May, in June of 2021, you know, how do you answer people? And then they kind of look at you quizzically and say, how is it that people don't have access to food? How do you respond to that? There are so many layers to that. It's, it's poverty. It's a world of abnormal rearing called war cycle. It's people being in this perpetual state of poverty, legacy issues of residential schools and newcomers not having credentials to get great jobs and struggling because they've got language barriers. There are so many issues in, that put people in this space. And um, the fact that, um, you know, education is quite costly, so folks can't afford that. And just the systemic issues you see in families, um, you know, families are broken down and children are not getting enough support. We see highest rates ever of child depression and suicides. We have a, we have a community, province, a nation of children who are struggling And as a result, um, their families are struggling and work and school become side things. 
And as a result, if folks are on assistance or just have disabilities and are getting getting support from the government, those rates haven't changed in 20 years. So if you can think back what you made 20 years ago and then move that fast forward that to having to have those same dollars today and go shopping, that those dollars go don't go very far. And folks on fixed incomes are really struggling. Even since COVID started, we've seen fresh produce go up 8.3% in Manitoba. Not even the non-perishables have gone up. We see less supply of things. So people can raise the prices because there's a higher demand. And folks who are low income are struggling. And that continues to happen. It's, it's hard to imagine in a country, especially Manitoba as a province, where we have people that grow in abundance, fruit, vegetables, and all these kind of things. And we have farmers of all kinds. Um, it's, it's hard to get your head around. We have a great program where we have um, folks from different countries, international students that do a year of service. We've had folks from Russia and from Egypt and all over the world. And Canada is one of those top places in the world to live. And they come here and they're shocked that there are people that live here in parts of Manitoba that don't have running water. They can't believe that. You know, I, I spent some time at uh, at St. Boniface uh, Hospital Foundation. And, you know, one of the, they have a humanitarian award there. And, and a number of us were successful in bringing Sir Bob Geldof in to speak. And, you know, his whole thing was he looked at poverty in, in, in Africa and just, of course, he was very active in that file. But to your point, he said almost the same thing when we talked about, you know, sort of hunger in Manitoba. His comment was, you know, Manitoba is the cornflake capital of Canada. How is it possible with all the food you produce that people are hungry? So, you know, I, I, your answer is, uh, is, is very much appreciated because it is, it is a difficult, it's not a one, solution answer it's 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 very layered and and your explanation is excellent so so thank you for that karen i want to get a bit of a sense because you touched on covid how how have your operations how have they been impacted by covid because presumably you know you can't have people as you normally would coming in to get hampers etc so how have you pivoted to deal with that and it's a very good word take me back to my basketball days Totally. I was a guard. So pivoting was a big part of my job. (laughs) We had to. And I look back now, you know, 15 months in, I can barely remember March of last year when this started. But I knew that myself and my leadership team literally were in at 7 a.m. every morning. And we met with our leaders every single day and our managers and our staff almost every second day to look at the challenges. And one of the first things I had to decide was, in order to, we, we knew we were an essential service, so we had to keep food flowing. So I had to figure out how do I keep the people that work for us, what we call our crew, how do I keep them safe and feel that it's okay to come to work when everyone's been told to stay home? So decided right away to lock our doors. We never have our doors locked before. If you've been here in the past, it's kind of like a community center. People would wander in, they would volunteer go for coffee in the kitchen. It was a place, a safe place to be. But all of a sudden, in order for me to keep our staff safe and leaving their families and coming to Harvest to serve other families, we had to lock our doors. We closed our on-site movement. And that again was to keep the traffic down so we knew who was entering the building and keeping them safe. 
We put in extensive protocols around cleaning and you know, social distancing. We have signs, we have marks on the floor. We did all kinds of things. We worked closely with our um, health inspector to make sure we hadn't missed anything. And he came in, I think, week two and was like, okay, you guys are on the right track. Things are good. Um, and I talked to our, I talked to our staff. We have several staff that have young families. And I would check in with them and say, do you feel safe coming to work? And they said, I've never not felt safe coming here since COVID started because we do all the things that we do. So that was the biggest piece was, first of all, making sure my staff felt safe and comfortable coming. We had a great support because we closed all of our volunteers at that time in the first lockdown. And the city had to close a lot of their public spaces, libraries, pools, et cetera. So they've been a great supporter and a great help. So we were able to work with them to second a group of librarians to come in every day and work with us to help us, again, sort and package the food to get out, which was tremendous. So we had the same population every day and they came for three, they were with us for three months the first time. And the second lockdown, we had another group of aquatics folks that came for three months to help us. So without that support, literally we would have all been on the floor packing hampers every day and we would not have kept up. So we had to also change our entire warehouse structure. We used to have 200 volunteers come in in the morning and two in the afternoon. And then same in the evening and on weekends, we were down to 30 volunteers. So we had to figure out how to work more efficiently to serve more folks because of COVID, but also make sure we could get it done. So we reached out to our friends at Boeing. They're assembly line people. They help us set up assembly lines for hamper creation. Um, all over our building in our warehouse so we could social distance. And then we reached out to Duhok Consulting to help us in, put embed lean and continuous improvement into our warehouse, which now makes us far more effective for social distance. And we're actually serving more people than we've ever served before with less people doing the work. I guess you always look at some of the, the difficulties that come with the challenges of COVID, but the way you've explained it, I mean, again, reaching out to partners uh, you know, like Duha, Boeing, and, and you know, bringing them into a system and, or putting a system in place that, that helps you to streamline what you're doing. You know, that has to be, I guess, looked at a bit of a silver lining, something that is, uh, is, is really sort of beneficial to the ongoing operation of what happens at Harvest Manitoba. Absolutely. Now, that because we have those processes in place, we know exactly if our numbers were to spike up suddenly, they've been growing consistently, but if they spiked and we need more hampers to be created, we know exactly how many hampers we can create in a two-hour session, We, you know, all those things. So now we are much able to manage our volunteer numbers and we know where they need to be, what station they need to be at, and it makes now doing what we do so much easier. So it is silver lining for sure. So, Karen, a lot of times, uh, those of us that uh, have gone to public events, typically there were kind of tins for the bin. You could make a donation. Well, of course, now with COVID, there are no public events. So what kind of impact has that had on how you're able to provide product and, and produce for for those that uh, that come to, uh, to Harvest Manitoba? We've seen ebbs and flows over the 15 months, and I think it's both the crisis initially and I think now we're seeing a bit more of the fatigue. But when we stopped having events and people knew that we were short on food because pub the public was buy bulk buying. If you remember back in the days, you'd go 
and the shelves were bare because they couldn't keep up in the grocery stores with the supply, um, the demand that was there for their products. So we did, we did outreach through some of our partners, Virgin Radio, et cetera, talked about, you know, Harvest needs help. Um, and we saw a tremendous outpour of the public doing contactless food drives in their communities. We had MLAs and city councillors in their neighbourhoods put up flyers and say, on this day, we're going to drive around with a truck. If you've got non-perishables, here's the top 10. Put them on your front doorstep and we'll pick them up. We had thousands of pounds of food come in that way. Companies that were now um, either isolating or working very small skeleton crews did food drives in their offices and and dropped them off. Um, We saw just so much support that way. But it still wasn't enough because the gap from the retail sector, which is our biggest um, provider of non-perishables and perishables, really dropped. So we had to actually get funds. And we got that support from the public to purchase food because we had to, for the first time in our history, purchase food to go into our hampers. We didn't have enough. Well, and that is unusual for sure, uh, but you do what you have to do. I mean, again, in your capacity as the as CEO, I mean, that's a leadership role that you you have to take and, and obviously for the right reasons. But, you know, Karen, I, I, I guess it's just one of the, the elements that I think is worth just sort of coming back to for a quick second when you talk about these, you know, MLAs or city councillors or whoever it may be, you know, that's fulfilling their role, but really the public, the people that would come out to, you know, put something on the back of a pickup truck or back of something. I mean, you know, I guess Winnipeg is really a city that really does care. And I think that that is worth, uh, uh, you know, sort of a double mention, if you will. So, you know, good on you to work and reach out to allow people to sort of participate. But um, that's just massive, you know, in terms of caring. You know, it really was. And we didn't know what to expect. So when the food stopped flowing and then we went out to the public, the outpour or the inpouring of food truly reminded us. We know Manitobans as a whole across the country are very generous, but we got to experience that. And there are many times that we had tears in our eyes. The folks would come. We had a group, I forget which group it was, a plumbing company that at Christmas decided to do a food drive for all their, all their clients as well as their, all of their partners and their staff. And they had about 40 trucks they used for their business and they crammed them with food. And they were lined up down the street, just dropping off into the bin. And literally you were crying. We were crying. We were so touched. And I think people, it's an experience, I get goosebumps thinking about it now, to see that people really care about each other and about community. And we talk about it takes a province to feed a province. And Manitobans have stepped up. Winnipegers have stepped up. Our growers and producers have stepped up. We got new partners in chicken producers, egg, egg producers. We've got good partners with dairy and cheese and milk. It's, you know, we're, we're so uniquely positioned in the country when it comes to food banking. We're the only food bank that has a 30 plus year relationship with the dairy farmers that allows us to give children under 12 milk every time we serve them and they get cheese as well. No one else has that. We have things in place. The work done before I got here by David and his dedication built strong partnerships that just continue to grow. And through this crisis, we've seen that really come to light and everyone stepped up and stepped in to fill the gap. It's been truly amazing. 
Yeah, and you know, I just uh, want to acknowledge uh, uh, your style of leadership to uh, to give a shout out to David Northcott, who was involved. I think many many people know. Uh, for whatever reason, sometimes it's hard for the new CEO to give a shout out to the to the old. But good for you for doing that, Karen. I mean, you're clearly uh, building on that foundation and advancing it and making it your own. And uh, and that's, you know, what good organizations do. Uh, I want to just touch on one of the things that I think is very interesting that, uh, that uh, Harvest does. And that is they, a lot of the volunteers are, and it might, are they, would you use the term clients, people that use your service? So they're clients. So a lot of the volunteers that work in Harvest are also clients of Harvest. That, that's a very, very interesting um, and unique situation, I would think. That's the giving and receiving. So when folks know they can call Harvest, we ask very few questions. You know, we ask them what their situation is, how, what their family size is, age of children, et cetera, to make sure the hamper they get will meet their needs for food support. But when they realize it's free and really it's kind of barrierless to get that support, I think people are so touched that they think if I can give back and help, I will. And so they volunteer because that's important to them because they know they've been helped. And we had a great experience. Um, Fisher River is a community just outside the city that is a, has a food bank. And we did a special summer pop-up in the, when kids were home over the summer, months after being home for months after spring break, we did a pop-up where we gave packages for a week for every child in that community and several others. They were so touched that at one point they were able to do their own community food drive and bring food back for other food banks. And they said, we want to give back because you guys have given to us and we can now do something. It's that reciprocity and that's that continuous thing it's where it's just as good to give as it is to receive. Such great stories, Karen. And, and, and one of the challenges is how do you get a chance to sort of share all of those stories? Because that's positive news. You know, it's great news. I, it's under difficult circumstances, but great news. Let me uh, pose a question to you, which... You know, your, your, your background, you're, you're, you're an agent of change. You've got a, a business sort of acumen. You have a, a driver of uh, so many elements that would talk about how do you build and build and build and build when ironically, the mission of uh, Manitoba Harvest or Harvest Manitoba is to really put yourself out of business. So, you know, that is such a just, I mean, just an odd way to approach an organization, yet so important. Is there a, a model that you're aware of, Karen, that has actually been able to sort of show that that has worked? Well, this is one of those moments we're going to have to redo this because we changed our vision and mission. And that was something when I was interviewed for the job, knowing I've worked in child welfare for so long, I knew putting ourselves out of business was not even realistic. So when we changed our name, we changed our vision to working together towards a healthier future for all, where no man told goes hungry. And we talk about that in that giving and, take and, and receiving. So we can be healthier and, and feel better about ourselves by giving. Meanwhile, people that receive are also going to be healthier as well. And our mission is about three things, collecting and distributing food, providing client-centered long-term solutions. We have training programs. And then advocating and informing. So we did change it because, and that's that's typical now of the sector. I think when the industry started and the sector began, people 
felt it was going to be a stopgap and things would get better. But with, um, you know, fixed incomes based on 20 years ago, um, that gap is only getting bigger, not smaller. So we realized that wasn't really a statement that could be possible at this point. Yeah. And, and I don't say this in a, in a tone to congratulate you, Karen, but I do say it this way that I think what you've done is you've looked at a situation and said, what is realistic? Like, let's ensure that we have goals that are real, that are achievable. So the way that you have, again, I'll just use your point guard uh, uh, terminology, I believe you've pivoted to that, I think is one that people can embrace, you know, that they can get behind, not that they couldn't before, but, you know, it was just such a such a stretch to be able to do that. I mean, a great stretch, but a stretch nonetheless. Talk a little bit about advocacy. Um, it's one of your three goals you mentioned. Talk a bit about the education advocacy and, and, and how is that working and what are your platforms? Well, I think, as you mentioned, what's most important is reminding people what we do and why we do it. And I think that's where advocacy comes in. We have an advocacy impact leader that works in the community and we've really, again, positioned ourselves to focus, as you mentioned, poverty is so complex. We've really positioned ourselves to talk about poverty as it reflects food and food security or insecurity. So we talked about that. We just did some research that we're launching in the middle of June called Harvest Voices, where we talk to the folks who get food from us to learn more about them. And the more we learn about them and their challenges and barriers, the more we can share that with all Manitobans to understand what is their reality? What, who, who comes to Harvest? Why do they come to Harvest? Why do we need this kind of service? That's what advocacy is all about. Um, we talk about things like, for example, um, truth and reconciliation. And the fact that so many people, especially when I worked in child welfare, in, in a community like we are now with lots of Indigenous families, I found so many of my friends and colleagues that work in different sectors didn't really know the stories and didn't understand why people were in this space. And I think it's because it was never really told in a way that they could grasp. So I think it's important for us to advocate for things that we think will make a difference in the lives of those we serve. So definitely it's about, um, we talk about school nutrition programs. Studies have, have shown for decades that when you provide nutritious meals for children in schools, it does two things. It fuels their body for healthy growth and learning, but it also keeps children coming to school. Where families are struggling and kids know they can go to school in the morning and get a hot breakfast and get a good lunch and meal and a snack, if that's the only reason they come to school, then learning will be a byproduct of that. So we wanted to support that. So that's one of our, our goals is that we would love to see more support in the schools, especially in the low-income areas where they have that support for the families. We talk about the importance of childcare. We know that there are lots of single parents, mothers and fathers, raising children, and because of barriers, aren't able to go to work because they provide because they have to care for their children. If there is more subsidized daycare for children, children get a lot of different experiences. First of all, they get early childhood development support. So they're learning to be better equipped to go into the school system earlier. Mom is going to work. So now there's a, a dad. So now there's a, a confidence and a, a pride in will to support your family that everyone wants to have and make sure their kids have um, someone to look up to and you can take care of your family. And thirdly, children that 
studies prove that children that have early childhood education go further and are more successful in school. So um, I was at a, a meeting in Ottawa several years ago, and I met a, um, a member there who stated that in the 60s, they got involved in politics and talking about what was going on in their community because they wanted a national child care program. And she said, I can't believe at that time it was 2018 and we still don't have one. Right. So child care is very important to us because it makes a huge difference to our families. So those are, and we talk about the North. We know there's a huge imbalance and inequity in terms of service to the North and trying to help provide solutions and supports to ensure that there are, there are programs and there's food and there's opportunities for people who live in the North to, to strive and be successful. Yeah, I think that's uh, such a an important point that you make. And I, I want to just spend a moment on just, you know, sort of some of the numbers. And I don't know if these are accurate. I, I took them off your website, Karen. But, you know, as I said, Manitoba Harvest by the numbers, 11,403,822 pounds of food were received, $156,500 of volunteer from 7,985 volunteers. 7,097 people reached via community activities, 4,212 of them students. And I guess the one that sort of really struck me at the bottom was just the number 451,464 adults, 313, 716 children. And when you talk about this notion of having, you know, breakfast for children, ensuring that that allows them to go, I mean, those, those numbers are staggering. But what on the other side of this equation is what you're doing about it. And I think that's what's so important about the message that uh, has to come from uh, Harvest Manitoba, that those are the elements of change that you're bringing to try to make this a better community. Yes, we have that. I think, no, I have to try to remember. I think we're the second highest child poverty, we are the second highest child poverty rate in the country behind Nunavut, which is right above us. And right now it's about one in five children are suffering from food insecurity. So um, we have a very large, 46% of all the folks that we serve, which is now over 80,000 a month, 46% of that 80,000 are children. So we are really trying to build a healthier future for Manitobans. And we know part of that is making sure children are fed and educated because we've certainly seen the impacts of children who are leaving the system, who have been in different systems that have no education, they don't have anywhere to go, things to do, and we see crime rising. So we think food combats everything, and it can combat crime. If children can eat during, get to daycare early, have meals, go to school, be successful, they'll come out and they'll get jobs. So we're trying to support the children in the schools, as well as we have our training programs that helped those children before that didn't have a great background in education because of life circumstances. We have, out of sight of COVID, our training programs for children 16 and up to give them opportunities to get good paying jobs, to get out of this system and get into a healthier future for them. Uh, such an unfortunate situation. But again, you know, again, through a caring lens, through a human rights lens, everybody, you know, food is a is a right, and the, the work that you're doing there is is really extraordinary. 
Um, one of the things that I would uh, would ask in in your level, in your capacity uh, at being an agent of change, you've already brought a lot of change to uh, Harvest Manitoba. You know, when I talk to these uh, podcasts, Karen, typically I ask the CEOs, the presidents that are the leaders in the organization, how they would like to be remembered. I would think I would like, first of all, my crew, what we call our staff, our crew, would feel that they have been impacted in such a way where they've seen their own personal growth. I've invested not only in my leaders, but also in our organization's professional development. I think that's really important. So I'm feeling that they had felt valued and respected and heard. That's probably the first thing. I would say for the public that they have a better sense of who Harvest is and what we do and the impact of what we do. And that would, that will continue. And then I think personally, a program that I started in support of child's um, meal programs is Breakfast to Go, which is a weekend breakfast program for kids that we have expanded now into some of the northern communities. And we now expanded even further into the summer months. So that's, um, if I were to have a legacy, I think that would be one of them. You know, I could say, yes, we became more efficient and more effective. We got better at storytelling. But I think having an impact on the community that the kids in programs like Breakfast to Go or getting those summer meal programs will just help them continue to grow and be interested and want to participate in education and have a better future. I think that would be the goal of anyone in this kind of a environment is to just, again, healthier future for Manitobans and give kids a really good start. Well, I think that one of the pieces that I read about you is the comment was Karen Taylor Hughes, a leader who serves. And clearly that is what you have done in your journey, what you continue to do. And um, I want to wrap this uh, wonderful conversation up uh, today, Karen, by just saying that, in my opinion, as a point guard, I see you hitting threes outside the key constantly in how you've uh, managed your, your life and your journey. And I want to thank you for taking some time. And I just want to close with this, that one of the things that, that Harvest does extremely well is they say, look, you can give to Harvest in three ways. One is food. One is time through donation. Of course, one is through money financial donation. And I think that is just a tremendous recipe for success. Is there one of those areas, Karen, that anybody that might be listening to this podcast would say, or you would tell them that if there's, you know, I mean, it's obviously a changing dynamic, but if there's one area that would say, you know, here's an area that we could really use some help in of the three, is there one that's more a bit of a priority than others as we speak today? And you're right, it does move from day to day, week to week, the priorities. But I would say we are definitely, during this particular time, volunteers are important. We have a really safe space. We have a group of volunteers that come regularly and new folks are coming in. But I think if people are feeling a little housebound and they feel it's okay to leave their home if they're feeling comfortable, we have a very safe environment we wear masks, we wear gloves, we've got cleaning protocols, we've got hand sanitizer, people are socially distanced, but you're still serving your community. So volunteering is a great way to help right now. 
I am going to again, Karen Taylor Hughes, thank you for spending some time with me on Humans on Rights. It has been a pleasure to chat with you, to learn from you. Again, I can't help but close on a basketball analogy. And as you go through your continue your journey in life, I wish you nothing but net. Oh, that's awesome. Swoosh. Thank you very much. Humans on Rights is recorded and hosted by Stuart Murray. Social media marketing by the creative team at Full Current in Winnipeg. Thanks also to Trixie Mae Bituin. Music by Doug Edmond. For more, go to humanrightshub.ca. A production of the Sound Off Media Company. What happens when we play outside? We become healthier, both mentally and physically. We become more creative and more focused. We connect with nature, each other, and ourselves. Let's Take This Outside, a new podcast hosted by me, Marianne Iveson, an aspiring outdoor athlete and nature lover. I speak to athletes, outdoor professionals, and scientists about their connection to nature, how it affects their performance and everyday life. Let's Take This Outside, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, and at ivisonvoice.com slash podcast.